Greetings. This is Kevin Saunders of the Arizona Bible Class, and you found the podcast that I produce on a weekly basis. In this podcast, of course, I address the gospel for the coming Sunday, and I hope that you find it insightful. My goal, of course, is to do this every week throughout the year, 52 times a year, and uh, hope as well that you will take advantage of this podcast and use it in a number of ministerial situations as well as for personal reflection. I can see an obvious way to connect this sort of a podcast with the RCIA programs in Catholic parishes and catechist formation programs in the same, and also as a part of small faith sharing groups that gather weekly uh, to discuss the gospel. The insights that I provide from the history and geography and cultural world of the Middle East, I think will prove beneficial, especially as you prepare to attend Mass on the weekend. You'll know the backstory and be ready to receive the preaching. If you want to learn more about what I do professionally, you can find me at the ArizonaBibleClass.com website, and there you'll find a list of the eight venues around the Phoenix area where I teach on a weekly basis, as well as find a way to purchase individual books of the Bible that I've taught through over the years. The entire Bible is available. I've recorded it all, and it's on the website. So take a look, read my bio, and if you need to contact me, feel free to do so through the website or directly via the Gospel Comes to Life at gmail.com email address for this particular podcast. Having said that, it's time now for the gospel to come to life. And we find ourselves this week looking at an entire chapter in the gospel of John. John chapter 9, which is unique to the gospel of John, which is not to say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were not aware of this particular healing miracle, but simply that having already known of the compilation of the ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, our gospel author, has literary license to reveal further miraculous activities of Jesus, in particular John chapter 9, and in next week's gospel, John chapter 11. This chapter is dedicated to a man who was born blind. Let's set the scene. The scene, the location of this particular miracle at its outset, is at the entrance to the Temple Mount on what are called the Southern Steps. There are steps leading up to a dual-arched entryway that allow access to the Temple Mount platform above and then closer and closer proximity toward the temple as you move northward. Uh, These particular steps were frequented by persons like the man born blind, who I must tell you is not at all to ever be conceived or thought of as a beggar. He is, in fact, an alms solicitor or an alms-worthy person. In Judaism, you have a threefold responsibility in your life of faith. You are to pray daily, a twice-daily remembrance of prayer based on Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. Hero Israel, the Lord is one, and we will worship the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, and our strength. You're additionally required by Jewish law to fast one day annually, the Day of Atonement. We 
know that as Yom, the day of Kippur, uh, after a 10-day reflection and time of repentance and relational restoration. You follow that period of time with a one-day, 24-hour black fast. And then you're also duty-bound to give alms. And how can you give alms unless God provides alms-worthy persons in your life? This fellow who is seated at this site is there for that express purpose. In other gospel accounts, for instance, uh, the Matthean account of Jesus making his way through Jericho, he encounters two blind beggars at the entrance to Jericho. They're two blind men who are soliciting alms because it's a duty of a person of faith to give alms. God has to put almsworthy persons in your company so that you have persons to whom you can give the alms in the first place. Additionally, in the Gospel of John in the fifth chapter, we have that fellow at the Pool of Bethesda who had been for 38 years placed there by family members in order to be an alms-worthy recipient. An interesting point about the Middle East is that when you give alms to an obviously alms-worthy person, in Arabic, the response is typically one of saying you're welcome. It's an odd sort of a turn of a phrase, but it suggests that the alms recipient is aware of your responsibility in faith to give alms. He or she has been there for that express purpose. Now that you've been able to give the alms, it's a mitzvah, it's a blessing for you. And so the response appropriately from the recipient is you're welcome. It's a blessing that I was here. Now, why all of this background? Well, because it's not clear that any almsworthy recipient would necessarily want to have their sight restored or their ambulatory ability restored. That's why, in some cases in the gospel, when Jesus comes upon an obviously almsworthy person, he asks them, do you want to see? Do you want me to heal you? That's not the case here, but it is more typical in the ministry of Jesus. Now, with that understanding, we well can place ourselves in the location of the entrance into the Temple Mount, where Jesus and his growing number of disciples have gathered. And as they arrive on the scene, they pass by a man who everyone knew had been blind from birth. He had been there for years and years and years, and was a familiar figure at that particular location. His disciples, remember the word disciple, matates, means his students, asked him a very interesting question. Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is an interesting question, which has been asked of many rabbis over the course of millennia. What is the reason for the condition this person finds themselves in? I recall reading in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, as David laments and repents because of the intensity of the sin he's committed against God, he prays in verse 7, Behold, I was born in guilt. In sin, my mother conceived me. And then again, in Jeremiah chapter 1, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet very early in his prophetic career. 
And he proclaims, before I formed you, God speaking to the prophet, in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I dedicated you. You are a prophet to the nations. That is how I appointed you. So the question is, obviously, that the person in front of us is blind. Why is he blind? Had he committed some sort of sin before birth? Or had his parents sinned? And this was a punishment that befell them? What is the response of Jesus? Well, his answer, of course, is the one we would expect. Neither he nor his parents sinned. It is rather that the works of God might be made visible through him. This is an opportunity to teach you about how God works in the world. Jesus goes on to say, we, meaning his disciples and himself, have to do the works of the one who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. That is, in the nighttime hours, no one is at these locations to solicit alms. This is a wonderful opportunity to reveal the power of God. And while I am, Jesus says, in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he knelt down, spat on the ground, and made a sort of clay out of the dust that was on the paving stones uh, that people were walking upon. And with that clay, manufactured with that dust and saliva, he smeared that clay on his eyes and said to the man, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and he washed and he came back to see. Now, if you ever have occasion to travel to Israel, or perhaps one day may travel with me, you'll see the difficulty of locating the Pool of Siloam from this particular location. You look to the south along a ridge line that is part of a village called Siloam, or Silwan now, and you know that that pool was there in the time of Jesus somewhere. It's really only recently been discovered, as recently as about 15 years ago, and the site formerly associated with the pool has now been authentically identified, and it's much larger than you would imagine, and in the time of Jesus would have been columned with porches uh, shading the area. All that destroyed later in time by a violent earthquake, and we know now as well that there was a royal road that led from these very steps straight down to the pool of Siloam, because every Jewish person anticipating attending a sacrificial offering needs to ritually wash themselves. And that would be the purpose of that pool. And of course, that's why Jesus sent this fellow there to do exactly that. Now, in the locale of the columned area known as the Pool of Siloam, a pool of water roughly the size of a Olympic-sized swimming pool, the man, with his sight restored, is suddenly recognized by his neighbors and those who had seen him earlier, in verse 8 now, as a beggar. Well, not as a beggar, remember, but as a lifelong alms-worthy recipient. And they asked one another, isn't this the one who used to sit and solicit alms? He didn't beg for anything from anyone, I have to emphasize. Well, some said it is, but others said, no, 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 he just looks like him. But the man responded, no, it's me. It's me, I am. And so they said to him, well, then tell us how your eyes were opened. 
and all he knew was that the man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and told me to go and find the waters of Siloam and wash. And so I went there and I washed, and I was able to see. And they then responded to him, well, where is this Jesus? Where is he? And he said, well, I don't know. I mean, he wouldn't be able to recognize him even if he knew where he was. He'd never seen him before. The sight was restored after the 15 or 20 minute journey down to Siloam. Well, they brought the one who was once blind, whether or not born blind is going to be something they are going to adjudicate to find out, to some Pharisees, religious leaders who have jurisdiction in these matters. You see, John reminds us that Jesus had made that clay with the saliva and the dust on the steps leading to the Temple Mount, and it opened this man's eyes on the Sabbath. Well, you and I would say, well, good for him. But remember, there are Sabbath rules and regulations that needed to be honored. And you were never to affect healing on the Sabbath in anyone's life if that particular condition was not life-threatening. In fact, Jesus challenged these conventions. He healed a man in a synagogue who had a withered hand. He did that on the Sabbath. The man who had been waiting 38 years to have his paralyzed limbs restored to walking ability was healed on the Sabbath. In those two cases, as well as in this particular chapter, the persons with the obvious infirmity are living and actively engaged in alms reception, and their life is not threatened. And so, as the Pharisees will say in other parts of the gospel, you can heal on six other days, but not on the Sabbath. So this is a challenge to that sort of teaching. By the way, you are always required to save the life of anyone and breach Sabbath rule and restriction if that is necessary. Well, as he comes before the Pharisaic adjudicating body, the Pharisees also asked him how he was able to see. And he said to them, well, he, meaning Jesus, put clay on my eyes, and then I washed, and now I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, well, this man clearly is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others, more reasonable, read here, perhaps men in concert with the fellow we met in John chapter 3, the Pharisee Nicodemus, who reveals to Jesus that he and others have been so impressed with who Jesus is and what he's done. To remind you of that, when Nicodemus appears before Jesus in John chapter 3, verses 1 and following, he came to Jesus at night. Remember, not because he's a coward, but rather because he knew that he could have a prolonged conversation with Jesus in the evening hours when the throngs of people anxious to be healed had gone home for the night. And he was given an audience with Jesus, received favorably, and is honored to be in his presence. And he says, Rabbi, speaking now to Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 2, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. We know, that is Nicodemus and others, Pharisees like himself, sympathetic to Jesus as at least and most certainly 
a prophet of God. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these things that you are doing unless God is with him. And Jesus is impressed. He responds to Nicodemus, not with a challenge or with another question, which would be typical if he thought himself challenged by Nicodemus in the honor and shame world of the Middle East. A public statement of honor is typically challenged. A question is often responded to with another question to figure out the intent of the questioner. That doesn't happen here. Jesus says, amen, amen, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God that is beginning to appear without being born again from above. And of course, Nicodemus has already begun that journey. But again, why take you to John chapter 3? Because Nicodemus reports to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who comes from God. We know. And so with that in mind, I return to John chapter 9. Some of the Pharisees would say, this man cannot be from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. He has healed on the Sabbath yet again. But others said, how can a sinful man do such things? And there was a division among them. And so they said to the blind man again, now again, we ask you, what do you have to say about him since he opened your eyes? And the response of the blind man, very honestly, he speaks of what he's experienced. He said, he is a prophet along the lines of Elijah or Elisha, able to affect miracles, to call people back to life. Not all the prophets had that particular ability. Some of them were powerful in word, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel come to mind. But prophets in particular, like Elijah and Elisha, were powerful in word and deed. That's why Jesus was often compared to the prophet Elijah, because like Elijah, he was as powerful in word and deed. And that is what the blind man, or the man formerly blind, is announcing. Now, those in adjudication there at that time, we read those Jews, but everyone on the scene is Jewish. These particular Jewish men did not believe that he had been blind and gained his sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had gained his sight. And before the assembly, remember this is all done in a highly public area, they asked them, is this your son? Who you say was born blind? They must have responded in the affirmative. Well, they continue their questioning. How does he now see? Now his parents are a bit suspicious and perhaps afraid of the ramifications of their testimony. His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son. He is clearly our boy. And imagine the delight on their faces, recognizing that for the first time that son can see what his parents look like. That's the backstory. There's a moment of recognition there that's quite amazing. And they continue, though, to say, and we know that he was born blind. But as they stare at him and he at them, they continue. We don't know, though, how he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Why, ask him. He is of age, which means he's beyond the age of 20. 
and responsible for his own defense. He can speak for himself. Now, John, our gospel author, is writing to a community of faith that may, on the whole, not be familiar with Jewish practices, faith, and customs, nor of the particular time of these events, writing in the middle nine, the middle 80s of the early Christian era, many in his community would not have been aware of the sort of situation having to do with the religiosity of Judaism in that particular time of Jerusalem. So he reminds us in verse 22 that his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. Now remember, his parents are Jewish, so they're afraid of particular Jewish authorities. For these particular Jewish authorities, Pharisaic in name, had already agreed that if anyone acknowledged him, meaning Jesus, as the Messiah, he, and by extension his family, would be expelled from the synagogue. And the synagogue was not only the place where you gathered to read and study the Word of God, but also was your social center and the place where you fellowshiped with other members of your village or city community. That's the reason his parents said he is of age. You can question him yourself. Already they feared the possibility of persecutorial reprisal simply by acknowledging that Jesus had proved himself to be a candidate worthy of consideration as Messiah. Now things become very interesting at this point. A second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give God the praise, or in some other translations, give praise to God. It's a turn of a phrase in English translation that doesn't capture the intent of those speaking those words in the gospel. To give God the praise or to give praise to God is translatable in a turn of a phrase that we're more familiar with, swear to God, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is a judge's statement, and he is addressing the man formerly blind, and by saying to him, give God the praise, he's saying, tell the truth now, man, upon pain of divine suffering. And then he continues, we, those in association with this particular fellow, others, know that this man is a sinner, and that's because he's healed on the Sabbath when those with the infirmities that had limbs restored or sight restored could have been healed on any other day. Well, the reply of our man now sighted is as follows. If he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that I was blind and now I see. So they said to him, well, tell us again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Was it like the man with the withered hand in the synagogue when Jesus simply said, stretch out your hand, and he was healed? Or did he do something? Did he act as an agent of healing? And of course, Jesus had, because he made mud paste out of the spittle and the dust on the steps leading to the temple mount. So how did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen why do you want to hear it again? And listen to what he says. Do you want to become his disciples 
too? And why would they want to be his disciples? Why? They ridiculed him. And they said, you are that man's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. But why that response? Why would the man say, do you want to become his disciples too? It's because they asked him to repeat his story. The educational practice of the Middle Eastern world is different than our own. Memorization is paramount in the world of Jesus at this time. You're a people of the book, so you memorize the book. And in order to memorize something, you have to repeat it over and over and over again so that it's fixed in your memory. So there's a saying roughly translated from Hebrew that a student who repeats his lessons 101 times is a hundred times better than the student who only repeats his lessons a hundred times. So the idea that they're asking him to repeat his story suggests to the man that they might want to be his disciples. Of course, he knows that they don't, but that's the reason he makes that statement. Again, because of the educational expectation of memorization and the repetition of lessons. Do you want to become his disciples? Is that why you're asking me to tell you the same story over and over again? Ah, no. You are that man's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. And we know that Moses spoke to... I'm sorry. And we know that God spoke to Moses. But we do not know where this one, this man, this Jesus is from. You see, some say he's from Nazareth. Some say he's from Bethlehem. Some say he's from heaven. In the Middle East, all you need to know about a man is a simple response to two questions. Who is your father and where are you from? Your father's name is either one that I associate with honor or not, and where you're from is also indicative of who you are. That's why in John chapter 1, when Nathanael is approached by Philip, and Philip says to Nathanael, we have found the Messiah. He is Jesus of Nazareth. The response of Nathanael is, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, again, you used to think that was because Nazareth was a high ridgetop village and country Bumpkins abounded there. But in point of fact, Nazareth was a hotbed of seditious intent and revolt and rebellion. And, and these ideas about how to drive out the Romans from the land of Israel always seemed to begin in Nazareth. Because the Romans wouldn't chase you up to the height of your village. You had some freedom there. They're hot headed firebrands. They reject Jesus. They drive him to the brow of a cliff, intending to hurl him over because they don't like the sermon he delivers in Luke chapter 4. And he was raised in Nazareth. He was well known in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What is Nathaniel suggesting? No. An association with a Nazarene can lead to arrest and incarceration. That's his concern. And here, again, returning to the basic cultural understanding, we need to know who your father is. And that's not clear. I mean, Joseph is your adoptive father. He's your legal father. But Jesus has claimed that God is his father. And again, we don't know where this one 
is from. Bethlehem, Nazareth, Egypt, heaven. It's all a mystery. Well, the man answered and said to them, Well, this is what is so amazing, that you don't know where he is from. Yet he opened my eyes. Now, we know that God does not listen to sinners. We'd all agree on that. But if one is devout and does his will, he listens to him. And he continues to lecture. It is unheard of that anyone ever opened the eyes of a person born blind. In fact, if you read the Hebrew Bible, there are a number of miraculous manifestations of God wherein people who are blind see, and in some cases, people who are sighted are struck blind before they see again. But no narrative that speaks of anyone having been born blind, having their sight suddenly restored. So this man knows the word of God. If, he continues, this man were not from God, meaning Jesus, he would not be able to do any of these things. And so they respond to him, throw him out of court effectively by saying, you were born totally in sin and you are trying to teach us. And then they threw him out. Remember the opening question of the disciples to Jesus, Rabbi Hussein, this man or his parents that he was born blind. Well, their conclusion is that this man had somehow sinned in the womb. And that's why they said, you were born totally in sin. The old English translation, you were steeped in sin from birth. So you were born without sight because of some sin you committed within the womb. Now, this would also be an argument for the understanding that life obviously begins at conception. And the womb is a place where life is contained because the Jewish faith community would understand the possibility of being able to sin effectively from that place before your birth. But that's for another consideration. When Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, he found him, right? Because Jesus knows what he looks like. And he said to him, because this man has no recognition of Jesus, he doesn't know who's speaking to him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, let's remember the title, Son of Man, which is capitalized here, and rightfully so, is a messianic title. A friend of mine, Rabbi Michael Mayersham, once said to me, he is so certain that this is a messianic title that if someone in his synagogue congregation introduced himself as the Son of Man, he would politely ask him never to attend again because he would have aspirations of belief that he was the Messiah. It's based on a vision of Daniel, the prophet. You can look it up, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, when a figure like a Son of Man, a male, enters into heaven and is given an authority, an everlasting authority, a kingdom that will last forever, that male figure is the second person of the Trinity. And the title then, Son of Man, is born. And so it's self-referential. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Messiah? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him now. He is the one speaking with you. And the man in faith said, I do believe, Lord. And he worshiped him. He honored him because his sight had been restored. And then Jesus said, finally, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see might see and those who do see might become blind. Some Pharisees who were nearby overheard him say this. 
They were with him and heard that statement and said, Surely we are not also blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you're saying we see, and so your sin remains. Remember, sin is a condition of alienation and separation from God that we categorize in degrees, simple, serious, or mortal. A condition of alienation and separation which starts small, distorts our judgment, always gets bigger, and can lead to death. So we have to be aware of the progression of sin in our lives and check it before it becomes mortal or spiritually impairing. And these religious leaders are well aware of that. Now that brings us to the end of the chapter, a chapter dedicated to this man and his healing and his conversion. It's been an honor to teach this chapter. And again, if you have need for a speaker in your parish for an Advent lesson or mission, a Lenten lesson or mission, or some other biblically-themed event, contact me. I have a Bible, and I'm happy to travel. In the meantime, you might find me in the Phoenix area. And if that's not possible, and you're listening in another location, like what you hear and share it with family and friends. Let's get the word out and let God continue to bless us through the Gospels each week. But for now, that's all the teacher has time to do. And I'll end by reminding you never to forget what great students you are.